A man is on vacation. He's driving the big sky back country of Montana, and he sees a little shanty house with a sign out front that says, Talking Dog for Sale. He's intrigued. He's on vacation. He has time, has a load of curiosity. He pulls in, rings the doorbell. Man answers the door, and all the guy says is, He's out back. So the man goes to the back. He sees a lab, and he says, Do you talk? And the lab says, Yes. You can imagine the man is shocked. He tries to overcome that. He says, well, tell me your story. And the dog says, well, I learned that I could talk at a young age. I'm a patriotic dog. And so I I got a job working for the government with the FBI. And soon thereafter, they had me jetting from country to country. I was in high-level meetings with cabinet members and world leaders and spies. No one thought a dog could eavesdrop. And for eight years, I served our country in that capacity. It wore me out. Then I got a job at airport security. I was identifying suspicious persons. I was uncovering hidden crime rings. I got awarded many medals. I got married, had a whole bunch of puppies. And now I'm here just relaxing. The guy was stunned. He walked into the house to the man, the owner of the home and the dog. And he said, how much for your dog? And he said, $10. The guy goes, $10. Why are you selling your dog for so cheap? And the guy goes, "Uh, he's a liar. He's never been out of the yard. (laughs) We live in a world, and if you live long enough, you'll be lied to. We live in a world where we're wondering what's news, what's fake news, what's real. Did they really find Elvis still alive? What about Tupac? Uh, What about the moon landing? Was it fake or the 9-11 being an insider job? What about that UFO that landed somewhere in a field in Roswell, New Mexico? What is true and what is real? And we are planting, planting ourselves in the middle of a story so long ago, but good and true and right for us today, where a group of people led by Paul and then later uh, Papyrus, uh, who heard the gospel and responded to the gospel. Some rejected it. Uh, Many uh, responded. Some rolled their eyes, but so many responded favorably accepting Jesus. And Epaphras went back and planted a church in his hometown of Colossae. But in due time, they were getting swept by the currents of their culture, swayed and influenced by the Greek smorgasbord of ideas, rhetoric, and religion, and and also, of course, living in the Roman Empire. And they were asking themselves, do we fall back? Is this true? Is it real? No, we're not called to believe in fables and folklore and nursery rhymes and lullabies and fake news and talking dogs, but we're called to believe in what is true. Every heart longs for it. I love a phrase in Colossians 1, 6. It says this about them. They understood the grace of God in truth. It's only good if it's true and real. And for them, they had experienced that, but they were being tempted to fall away because of the sway and influence of their culture. You have understood the grace of of God in truth. I love another phrase that I ISO from 113. You've been transferred from darkness to life. Some of you met, came to church campus earlier for an Ephesians class, and you know that Paul in his writings, he uses various metaphors to describe what God has done for us. You've been transferred from darkness to life, from death, from darkness to light, from death to life, from being a stranger to citizens, from being uh, from peasantry to royalty, from darkness to light. And it's funny, funny thing about you and me, funny thing about human nature, we, we hate the dark, but we love the dark. In fact, Jesus taught in John's gospel that we men, we, we, we people, we, we go toward the darkness, our evil deeds and what we want to hold and hide in secret. There's a part of us that loves the darkness. For the most part, the noble good part of you 
hates it. I spend a good bit of time up here nights and weekends in this big building. And would you be scared if you were me sometimes? Sometimes I'm, it's just me and Jesus up here. And I wonder if, uh, you know, with that noise I hear down the hallway or that creaking or rustling noise, if Jesus is really going to be present with me in my time of need, uh, fear strikes in me. I don't know how you would feel if you were up here. It's why I'm a fan of new LED lights and some renovation of this place. But I, I don't want to, I don't want to be in the dark. I don't want to be alone in the dark. I don't want to be scared alone and in the dark. I want the light. And Paul is saying, this is what Christ has done for us. But think about our darkness. Marriage is breaking up, children being born out of wedlock, girls struggling with eating disorders built largely on the idea of how they're confused as society tries to translate what really is beautiful. Men and boys enslaved to online pornography, bankrupt school districts, fearful neighborhoods, overworked parents, lonely retirees, fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of not being enough, fear of aging, fear of death, and there's plenty of darkness, plenty of darkness in our world, and we need this. We need to be transferred. We need what Jesus can give us. They understood the grace of God in truth, and when you do understand the grace of God in truth, you know what he's done, death to life, from strangers to citizens, from orphans to adoption, from peasantry to royalty. There's something new about you, and you don't have to make you new. He has made you new. In fact, there's nothing you can do to make you new. There was a, a rescue, and you and I are the ones who've been rescued. How much different would we live if we collectively live like we were people who had been rescued? How much pride would evaporate from this room? How, how, how much would you be concerned about how you look and who you see and what is your status or position? How less judgment and evaluation would you do to the one preaching the sermon and leading the songs? And how much introspection would you do in your own life, in your own heart? And how much would you look at this world in which we live and see that darkness needs light that Jesus can give? How would you treat the person next to you differently? How would we treat each other if we realize we've been rescued? And that nobody in this room, only one outside of the room, can do the rescuing. I want us to read Colossians chapter 1, as we did last week, this time verses 15 to 20. We read 1 through 14, a bigger stretch last week. Isolate just a few passages here in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. You can turn there. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm going to isolate a few of the phrases that we're about to read. But let me lead us, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image, Jesus, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. First thing to isolate, to talk to you about and ask you to consider is this idea that he is the image of the invisible God. Wait a minute. I thought we were the image of God. I thought you and I were the ones made in the image of God. 
Can I tell you, yes, the answer to that is yes. Look at the person next to you for just a moment. Look them straight in the eyes. That person is made in the image of God. When you leave the sanctuary today after this service, just a couple of minutes after 12 noon, the first person that you see, that person is made in the image of God. Not many of us apparently are going work to work tomorrow because it's MLK Day. And, but you won't see anybody at work, many of you, but the next person you'll see this week at your workplace, that person is made in the image of God. How could this change our political discourse and the cultural conversations that we're having now if we realize that everybody we interact with is made in the image of God? How are you and I made in the image of God? Your rational abilities point to the fact that you were made in the image of God. Your relational longings point to the fact that you're made in the image of God. When I attended three funerals this week and saw a body in a, bodies in caskets or ashes in urns and see people grieving, but many of those grieving, not as those who have no hope, but those who have hope, and that, that just eternity set in the hearts of people, when you know that a body is gone but a life hasn't ended, that yearning that you have inside of you points to the fact that you're made in the image of God. God, when you walk into a dirty, dark, messy room and you want to bring peace and order and harmony to that room, that shows you that you're made in the image of God. When you see the darkness, when you see the abject hurt and poverty and suffering in our world and you want to alleviate it, that points to the fact that you are made in the image of God. When your football team hires a new coach because the last year wasn't very good and you have hope that next year is going to be good just because they hired a new coach, that shows you that you're made in the image of God. He's pulling you and tugging you into a future that's different than where you are today. You and I are made in the image of God, but Paul elevates Jesus here because Jesus is elevated. While you and I reflect the image of God, Jesus is the exact image of God. Hebrews 1.3, he's the radiance of the Father's glory. He's the exact representation of who God is. It's in Jesus. The second idea, besides the fact that he is the image of the invisible God, he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, here is a real wait-a-minute moment. What is this teaching, the firstborn of all creation? We could spiral quickly here with some really bad theology, with some very improper understanding. Now, I'm not going to stand here today and explain the Trinity to you, how there is one God, a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. I can't explain that. You hear me say often when we, when we try to explain or think we can explain everything about God, we have a manageable deity. We no longer have God. He can't be explained. Again, David in Psalm 131, hey, these things are too lofty for me. They are above my head. I trust in you. They're above my head, but they're under your feet, and I trust you with it. I can't explain everything about God. I've seen preachers and teachers, I've done it myself, trying to give insight to the Trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one being, but their various roles or functions. Like, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor, but I'm a husband, I'm a father, or I have an eye, and there's a cornea, and a lens, and a retina. Like, all those things are, give us a little bit, but not really much understanding. God is just, he's other, he's beyond us. To, to go with the prophet Isaiah, our, his thoughts are greater than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. You're, you're not gonna get some perfect understanding of someone so great and lofty. So don't let this imply that Paul in any way is dropping something erroneous to the people there in Colossae saying that Jesus is less than the Father, that he was the firstborn in the way we may think it. You remember Paul was a Hebrew? And in Hebrew, 
there were two meanings for this one word, firstborn. One is physical, it's literal. In 1997, there was no R.J. Green. And on September 20th, 1998, Robert Michael Green Jr., R.J., came into being. We created him. God and me and Susan got together and created R.J. There was the, first, the firstborn. Abraham, you know, Scripture says that his firstborn was Isaac. But technically, physically, Ishmael is the firstborn. Same with Jacob and Esau. So the second meaning in Hebrew, Paul was a Hebrew, the second meaning of the word firstborn is the idea of priority or inheritance. And Paul is saying Jesus was the firstborn, not as lesser than, not as a created being, because Jesus created. But there's a priority, there's an inheritance, there is something about him. It's the Godhead in bodily form. Third thing to point your attention to is, for by him all things were created. How many of you rejoice that you're a created being? How many of you revel in a day like today? We should be having church outside today. We rejoice in creation. How many of you are glad that this thing is being held together? I don't know what all we share with each other, what we don't share, what we have in common, and what's disparate between us, but we share this in common, don't we? All right, just dropping a little green theology on you, no pun intended, but like we're caretakers of this planet. And there's some science to say that it's an increasingly fragile planet. I'm not going to get into that, uh, that debate. I, I, I think science is good. I follow science. Science is very important. It has a vital place in God's kingdom for sure. But here we are, and I, I, I was reading this week about how much the earth weighs. It's estimated, there's not an actual scale, okay, so don't email me later, but there's an estimate, scientists estimate that the planet Earth that we all are on uh, is estimated to weigh some six sextillion tons, all right? You have to think about that before you say it, six sextillion tons, a couple things there. A sextillion is, a six, six sextillion is six with 21 zeros. Wow, that's a lot. Second thing, mathematicians came up with a number with the word sex in it. Pretty cool. <laughs> Six sextillion tons is how much it weighs. Some of you put on a few holiday pounds, adding to that number a little bit. But here's the thing about it. The earth is suspended in nothingness. It's tilted at a 23-degree angle, yet we're not propelled or off propulsion when it comes to our being and the sustaining of it there are there's the orbit of the earth around the sun there's the tilting of the earth's axis at a 23 degree angle as we are suspended in this nothingness there is the water evaporation cycle that has amazing stability that confounds scientists there is a created being that god has made you hear me drop this often, but Psalm 19, I just love this. It's added to my worship as I've got a bit of a naturalist in me. But the psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day by day they pour forth speech. Night by night they reveal knowledge. You and I are called to enjoy this big world, to get out in it, to push the screen away, to push ourselves, overcome our own lazy inertia and get away from those screens and get out and enjoy the world that God has made and let him speak in nature to you and I. We need more of that today. But we gotta be careful. We gotta be careful to worship the creator and not the creation. C.S. Lewis, the great thinker in the book, The Weight of Glory, put it this way. 
The created things in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we cling to them. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not visited yet. God made. He made what we enjoy. He made what we experience with our senses in all of its glory. But it points us to somewhere else. He created. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Last thought here is that he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. I've been reading a little bit lately. Some of you are smarter than me on this stuff, but I've been reading lately from some physicists who are stumped, who are now starting to consider the God idea, who are studying the atom at its most microscopic core. And in the atom, or the, it, this is mystery of how it, it, it's the makeup, the st- structure of the atom, it should repel, but yet it doesn't. It stays together. How does the atom stay together? And some who have been staunch unbelievers are starting to use the phrase, the, the stronger force, because they don't have an explanation for it. Now, I'm not standing here today going third grade level and saying it's the naked hand of God holding up all that we see in the universe. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not insulting anybody here, but I'm just saying, what is it? What's happening? And can you not see the, the beautiful power of God behind the design, behind the universe? He's holding it together. But think about this phrase. I think Paul was clear. He's talking about creation, but he's talking about reconciliation. He's talking about your life and mine. You see, he holds the world together. He holds history together. And he can hold your story together. There's a song, you know, thank God for the broken road. The broken road leads back to you. Is that Rascal Flats? And we have, uh, we have, we have a past, everybody. We have a present. We have a future for everybody in the room. We live life, one philosopher said, moving forward, but we understand it looking back. And the broken road, God can redeem. It's not just a popular country song. It's true for so many of you. I thought this was over. I thought this was just leading down a bad path, but God can hold it together. Think about when someone has ever told you to hold it together. You ever had anybody like literally grip you and look you in the eyes and say, man, you got to hold it together. When they're doing that, what's happening in you? Probably there's some circumstances in your world where you're about to fall apart. And your friend, your loved one, they know that. And so they're telling you to hold it together. Not the best motivational speech in the world. It rarely works. In fact, I don't know that I've ever gotten it together when someone grabs me and tells me to hold it together. But there's something good in us that says, hold it together. But we're human, feeble and frail, and we're not good holder-togethers. Men. There's a whole tribe of us who think we are good at holding it together. Maybe we don't crack. Maybe we don't display the emotion. But we need another to hold us together. When there are cracks, when we're falling apart, that's what he does. I wonder today if someone needs to renew that trust in God being a holder and God holding it together for you. And even if you don't understand presently what you're experiencing, He's got tomorrow. He's got tomorrow. I'm going to give you three thoughts 
from this passage of Scripture as we start to round toward home. Here are the three thoughts. Paul is talking here about the preeminence of Christ. If you have an open Bible, a study Bible, you'll probably see that above verse 15, the preeminence of Christ or some, some word like that, the preeminence of Christ. So here's my quick outline. Jesus is first. Jesus went first. We should put him first. See what you learn in seminary? Y'all couldn't do this. Couldn't do it. Pay Only paid professionals. Jesus is first. Jesus went first. We should put him first. Consider this idea. I mean, Paul says it explicitly, the preeminence of Christ. He's the firstborn, not created. He was the creator. But he's first, and he went first. You see, the son of God, could, could, he, could make, he could feed 5,000 with just a few loaves and fishes. But the Son of Man became hungry so that he could point to you and I. He could say to us that I am the bread of life. The Son of God could turn water into wine. But the Son of Man could become thirsty so that he could tell us, anyone who's thirsty, let him come after me. And he will thirst no more. In fact, his, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. The Son of Man, the Son of God created the cosmos with the spoken word and all its glory and majesty. The Son of Man grew tired and weary so that he could say to us, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you spiritual rest. The Son of God dwelled in palaces of glory. The Son of Man was born in a stable, grew up in poverty so that he might be able to say to us, so that someone could say about him to us that he who was rich became poor so that we who were poor might be made rich. The son of God was adored by the angels. The son of man was condemned by Pilate, was scorned by man, was scourged by a whip so that it could be said about him that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is first and Jesus went first. Can I tell you, I'm so glad. I have so much accountability in my life. You ever think about this? We, we, we get together as men and go, oh, we need more accountability. We need accountability. You know what's wrong with you? You don't have accountability. I preached accountability a few weeks ago. I'm not contradicting that now. Some of us are living in secret, living in isolation. We need to be brought into accountability. But man, if I don't pay bills, they're coming to get me. If I drive down Lakeland at 120 miles an hour, they're gonna pull me over. If I don't show up here five, sometimes six days a week, I get fired. I've got lots of accountability. What I need is friendship and companionship and a savior. What I need is to realize that someone, while I was yet a sinner, they died on my behalf and I don't have to achieve anything. Sometimes I feel like I have to achieve stuff. Anybody feel that way? You know why you feel that way? Because sometimes you have to achieve stuff. You know, you don't like to think this way, but preaching is, is a performance. It's not just a performance, but it's a performance. Like, you do this and you'll see. You have to perform. You have to show up. Whether you're off tomorrow on MLK Day or not, you have to show up and you have to perform and you have to achieve. That's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. But when your world is falling apart, and that's what sin does to us, it enters in and it fractures us and it leaves us in need. And I don't have to achieve a thing. In Jesus, because he went first, I receive. And the impact of that, it's hard to describe. 
Because he is first, because he went first, we should put him first. Quickly, a few areas where I want to challenge us to put him first. The first is sort of a no-brainer, but it's amazing. It's amazing how we get off track, and I want to ask you to help me. If I'm your pastor, I'm your leader in some way, I ask you to pray for me. But I think we should put him first in church. We should put him first in church. This isn't about Robert Green. This isn't about you. This isn't about you consuming. This isn't about self-motivational help. This isn't about some other guru. This isn't about any of that. It's ultimately about Jesus, the one who we should put first always. Eight and a half years ago, about roughly 40 people started Fondren Church. And I remember those days. In fact, I hadn't talked about this much publicly, but there was a day in February of 2011 where me and two associates walked in this building. We didn't even have a church yet, didn't have a name for a church, had no articles of constitution. We weren't a 5013C. We were nothing but an idea, a vision, a little bit. We walked into this building. We met with a pastor here, and we were asking him, you know, we're going to start a church nearby. We want to bless you and bless the community and love to get to know you. And we asked him if he would be willing, if we started a church at the Capri Theater or somewhere nearby, maybe Dueling Hall, if we could keep kids in the gym behind us. We'd never been in the gym, but it looked like a big building. And I remember those early days of how God provided. There was a spirit that pervaded us. It was a spirit of whatever it takes. And when a church starts, I was reading just a few days ago, reading a chart. I'm going to put it up here in just a second. Difference between first generation and second generation. And if we're not careful, we can go from being reckless in our mission to being comfortable in the institution. And I pray I'll never lead that way. But I'm going to need some of you to keep it going. Here's a, a chart that one thinker puts. First generation versus second generation. Uh, small font to get it on one screen. Sorry. First generation does whatever it takes. The second generation, only what I'm asked to do. The first, I won't read them all. The first generation expects personal sacrifice. The second generation expects personal comfort. The first generation sees problems and seeks solutions The second generation that pastor gets emails because we see problems and complaints. The first generation sees possibilities and dreams about what could be God. Give us visionaries. The second generation sees barriers and reasons to quit. The first generation hears the voice of God firsthand and owns the vision. The second generation inherits the vision secondhand and questions every decision. I sat with a guy recently who was a part of a movement. The founder died uh, several years ago, and the movement just recently ended. Secondhand vision. First generation steps out with bold, reckless trust. The second generation sits satisfied in the stability of the institution. The first generation fears holding anything back from God. Second generation fears commitment. What a difference. The first generation feels privileged to be a part of the movement. The second feels entitled to the benefits of the institution. God, forgive us for where we have gone wrong. Tomorrow I will read in quietness and stillness letters from a Birmingham jail and think, God, help us be a movement. Help us be a movement when we interact with this world and move us away from complaining and problems and the benefits of an institution to reckless mission and trust. Would you pray for us? Would you pray 
for me. Just nod your head and I'll, I'll end the sermon very soon. Thank you for lying. Second area, quickly, that I want to ask you to put Jesus first is in your life and your blessings. Are you blessed today? We don't do this often, but if you're blessed, say amen. Shout something if you're blessed. Are you blessed today? Do you have some blessings? Does it cause you to have joy? Does it cause you to express it in gratitude? Does it cause you to stop and say thanks? Does it break the back of entitlement of your life? Do you realize there's a source outside of you that's the causation of that blessing? Would you put Jesus first in the good things that you're experiencing? Would you realize that it's from his hand? Thirdly, would you put Jesus first in your pain? You see, that broken road that leads back to you, we, we want to thank Jesus for the, the you, whoever the you is. Some of you got a you in your life. It's good to have a you. It's, if you're in a somewhat satisfying relationship, you're thankful for the you. But what about the broken road? Some of you are in the broken road right now. Some of you are not sure about the way forward. You can put Jesus first in that. You can put him first. When you get a little bit older like me, no one call me old, okay? Let's be clear, I'm older. But I can look back and see some things that I worried about when the road was broken. I didn't know what was going to happen. And now I look back and I see what he did. I see what he did. I'm glad I didn't quit. I'm glad I didn't drift too far. He's lifted me. Psalm 40, you two wrote a song about Psalm 40. He's lifted me out of the pit, out of the miry clay. But I can look back and see. See, putting him first in the midst of that pain. Let's put him first in the church. Let him be preeminent in the church. Let him be preeminent in your life, in your blessing, in your pain. Put him there. And lastly, I want to challenge you to put him first in your treasure. The thing that marked this early church at Colossae and the world of that day was that they were moving away from hoarding and acquiring and consuming to liquidating and giving away and looking at the world and saying, look at what we have. How many of you know I've known some riches in your life? You'd realize everybody is, is rich in the room compared to the world. How many of you known some riches and you've known some blessing? My hand is up. How many of you have known some poverty? Whether you're there, look, I've known some poverty in my life. I, I have eaten cereal with a fork just to save on milk. I've been to the park and ducks have offered me bread at the park. I've been, I've been out of it sometimes, but I've put him first in finances so many times. And that's the commitment that we make that we invite you in on. Jesus said, life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Are you willing to put him first in your treasure, with your treasure? Preachers talk about money again. Listen to me. It's the thing that consumes you. I'm talking to people right now. They're getting divorced. They're getting divorced. And you know what we're talking about? Money. Some of you will have trouble sleeping tonight. You know what you're going to be worried about? Money. You know what Jesus preached more about? More than heaven and hell? More about anything? Money. Money. Because it's a big deal. And I'm telling you, there are so many people, I might have preached this in December, but there are so many people that are like, Lord, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to be Lord of my life. And when something goes wrong vocationally, when they don't get the job, they don't get the promotion, something happens, an unexpected bill, then they're praying for Jesus to help them. But isn't it weird? Isn't it strange? Didn't it seem odd and ill-fitting that we don't invite Jesus in the first place into the world of our finances? And I'm saying, invite him in and put him first. God is not a leftover God. 
How many of you have ever invited somebody over to your house for leftovers? Anybody? Raise your hand high. We had nobody at the 930. Anybody at the 11? You have. Okay. For leftovers, okay. Jan Tucker is going to violate the sermon illustration. I need you to see me. I need you to see me after class. But Jan's got the blessed gift of hospitality. But look, when you, for the most part, when you invite someone over, you serve them something fresh and new. We had a friend come over to our house a few weeks ago, and he, he was watching the... He, watches the food network regularly and he was doing this thing systematically the top food networks top 20 recipes to cook toughest recipes to cook let me say that right so he was working through the 20 i don't remember what number we were but it was this he came over and brought it and fixed it fixed the last of it there it was this beef wellington with this mushroom bowl it was just crispy and amazing and it was good stuff when you go to someone's house and bring them food or you invite someone over you don't for the most part give leftovers because leftovers is saying, I prepared this for somebody else. You're secondhand. You're an afterthought. And that's our plan, most of us, in our giving, with our treasure, with the thing that's so gripping and so determinate of our future. We're not willing to give that to God. We're not willing to say first, and here's a big difference, here's a contrast, first and best versus good enough. Like everybody in the room, everybody in the room has something. Whether you've written it down, you have it on the wall to inspire you, you keep it in front of you, everybody's got something. You're thinking, I'm going to give my first and best of this. And then everything else or all those other things, it's just going to be good enough. But I wonder what is your first and best and what's your good enough. There's a series of commercials we're all laughing at. Okay is not okay. Y'all seen those? And that's the same idea. And we're like, hey God, it's okay, but it's not okay. He wants all of you. He wants you to put him first. He is first. He went first. He wants you to trust him first. What area could it be for you? For many of us, it is this. It's our treasure. In the middle of uh, Mississippi and America, and I, don't want to, I don't want us to settle. I don't want us to become institutionalized. I don't want us to look at our world with indifference. I want us to see how blessed we are. And I want to challenge some of you. These aren't my words, but they've lit me up. I want to challenge some of you to increase the standard of your giving, not your standard of living. And look, I'm not panicked here. Some of you, if you're new here, think, oh boy, th things are hard. Time. No. Listen, we had our best December ever. We had our best year ever. It took the last couple of weeks and the last couple of days. I was out in California in La Jolla with my family on vacation. I was standing next to the the seals, actually there were sea lions, not seals. But I got a text from Nick Crawford and it says he gave me the final number of giving. And man, I, wanted, I started hugging baby sea lions. It was beautiful. God is good to us. This is a great season for our church, but we can't stop now. We need to move forward. And so few of us are willing to trust Jesus in this area of our lives to put him first. Oh, who we could be, and oh, what God could do in you if you put him first. You're not going to have anything left over. Y'all wouldn't be able to steal from our checking account because the moment it goes in, it's all gone. Like we give, we give as an act of worship to our church, Fondren Church. We save a percentage, and then it all goes pretty much to the kids. It's all gone. Now, I'm going to keep an eye on our savings or retirement savings, but the money comes in and it goes out, but we give to God first. Don't put God in the leftover category of your life. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him, 
all things exist. All things were created. He's the firstborn. You see, there's a tie-in to the firstborn of who Jesus is and first fruits, what He calls us to do and exhibit in our lives, giving Him our best. Would you pray with me as we close? Would you thank Him in the stillness of this moment, a little bit of shuffling as we began to sing in a couple of moments, but would you thank Him for His grace? Would you thank Him for His grace and truth? It's a truth that is freeing. It's a truth that tells you and me that we don't have to achieve something He has already accomplished for us. That we can be a people who receive. A rescued people. Would you thank Him from the transfer, for the transfer from darkness to light and ask Him to shed light in your heart? Would you get out in front and just even pray, God, help me be a light that you call me to be? Would you thank Him for the gospel that we're never too sophisticated to not preach here at Fondren? That He went first. That He gave up. That He became sin. Would you invite Him in today into an area maybe that you've held back? very likely could be your treasure it could be your schedule would you invite him into that area would you ask him to show you what it's like to put him first father work in our hearts this morning in you in jesus we pray amen would you stand today the altar is open a couple of us will be down front to pray with you. Would you come today if there's something we can, if we can embrace you and pray for a need in your life, a decision, a direction, or something you want to praise Him for. We are here. Let's reserve these moments to honor Him.